The suburb of Abu Salim that surrounded the prison was always a stronghold of Gaddafi supporters. In August 2011, after Gaddafi had fled the capital and the rest of Tripoli had fallen into rebel hands, fighting continued there for more than a week. The day after they seized Gaddafi's compound at Babalazizia, fighters stormed the prison and released those still inside. They tried to break into the cells while filming on their mobile phones as prisoners crowded round the narrow slots in the iron doors where they used to pass in food jostling each other to see the chaotic, glorious scene. As the padlocks were smashed, hundreds of prisoners burst out into the courtyards and corridors, shouting Allah Akbar and hugging the fighters who had freed them. Three days later, I drove to the sprawling greyish-white complex, the gates in its previously impenetrable seven-metre-high concrete walls now swinging open. The low, empty buildings had an eerie stillness. For two decades, this had been the most feared place in Libya, the very name Abu Slim being synonymous with torture, starvation, sickness and death. Those who entered knew they might never get out, and their families might never know their fate. I wandered around the deserted corridors, looking at the drawings on the cell walls, pictures of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem with the legend, God Protect Us, and rows of single digits, a diagonal across each group of five, the universal prisoner's way of counting off the days. Many had written their names and the year of their incarceration, in the hope that if they died, at least someone might find out where they had been. Two small boys cycled down a passageway, one on the seat, one on the crossbar, with a bag on their handlebars, searching for loot amongst the abandoned clothes and dirty mattresses. It was a vast complex, covering 30 acres, with dozens of blocks and different wings. The prison had been largely rebuilt in the late 1990s. The new cells had bathrooms, and while the windows were too high to look out of, at least they let in some light. Guard posts surrounded by barbed wire stood at every corner of the outer walls, and some of the courtyards were now covered. The day I was there, a few people had found their way into the administration offices and were searching through prison records, trying to find clues as to what had happened to relatives who'd been imprisoned. Some people say the victims of the 1996 massacre lie underneath the new buildings, others that they were buried much further away. Abu Salim is a place of secrets and Libya is a land of hidden graves. There are years of work ahead for forensic scientists and human rights investigators. That was the day I met for the first time Wanis Elisawi, the opposition activist who had lived through the turbulence at the universities in the 1970s and been sent to Abu Salim after the failed 1984 uprising. In the morning, he had woken with a compulsion to return to the place where he had been incarcerated for 19 years. Released in 2002, he had never spoken to anyone outside his family about what he had suffered and witnessed. As we wandered round the prison yards, he struck me as a man with deep feelings, carefully controlled and suppressed, who had endured and survived through stoicism, and even now could scarcely let his emotions show. His face creased and his hair grey. He spoke calmly, until we walked into cell number seven, which he had shared with 13 others when first incarcerated. I stayed here for four years without seeing light, he said. Tears started to well and he put his head in his hands. 
I don't know why I came back here today, he whispered to himself. Some of his fellow prisoners were driven mad, he said. So he tried to wash and shave them, to keep them clean, to give them a vestige of dignity. He talked of being forced to run full tilt blindfold into a wall time after time, of being tortured with dogs and electric prods, of watching cellmates die and their bodies lying in front of him for days on end. We would wrap them in a blanket and beg the guards to take them away for burial, he said. The prisoners were mostly young men in their twenties and thirties, and they were always hungry. We would have one litre of milk for seven people, said Juanice, one piece of bread, one spoonful of jam. Dinner was a hundred grams of rice. Juanice was of mid-height and medium build, but after a few years he weighed only a hundred and ten pounds. For two years they were given no clothes other than one prison uniform and one blanket. It was damp and filthy. Juanice began to suffer from arthritis and haemorrhoids, but prisoners received no medical treatment, so he made trousers from a plastic curtain to contain the blood leaking from his anus. There was not enough room for everyone to lie down at the same time, so they slept in shifts. On one occasion, the guards dragged Juanice from his cell to make him confess on camera. He says he told his torturers that they were ruining the country, whereupon they broke his legs in three places with a baseball bat. A cellmate was pulled away to identify new detainees as co-conspirators. He never returned. The torture killed him. <laughs>